This morning's uh, scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 27. Uh, you'll find it on page 1219 uh, in the hymnals and the pews, or hopefully on the screen behind me, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the one body, as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor, and this morning I get the opportunity to explain this text that Brian read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me share a couple of conversations I had recently that kind of illuminate the need for this text. The first conversation was with one of our high school students who really longed for his friends to experience what he experienced, what he knew, what he knows that they would know. That is, he's got a, a group of friends who don't know Jesus and he would like for them to know Jesus. 
And he knows that if they would ever come to EP, that they would meet you or they'd be welcomed by you and that they would get to know Jesus through you. And so his heart's desire is that his friends uh, come to church here. The problem, he said, is they don't even know that EP exists. They don't know the church. They don't know you. They don't know the that you would welcome them, that it would be a good experience for them. And so his heart aches that he can't introduce you uh, to them or them to you. And so that's his desire. And I said to him, what you want is what we want as well. The second conversation was with a former member of our church who um, didn't have that experience, didn't think that we were all that great. In fact, she had been hurt by us, and as a result, she has a pretty negative view about our church community to the point where not only would she never recommend one of her friends to come here, she uh, doesn't go to church anywhere herself. That's how harmed she has felt. I put these two conversations together because they happened close together, but also I think one of the things that is true about our church, not everyone has the same experience that everyone else has about our church. Martin Luther King Jr. once described the church as the beloved community. That's kind of the the vision that Martin Luther King Jr. had for the church is that we would be a community of the beloved that loved, was kind of his message But what happens when that picture collides with our experience? When we don't live up to being either the beloved or one who loves? In a lot of cases, many people have become very cynical and disillusioned by the church. We need to also recognize that has an effect on the mission. That is, our reputation... The way in which the world experiences, when I say the world, just this community experiences us. One, it doesn't experience all the same. And because of that, and because in some cases it's not very that positive, it doesn't help our intention to be involved in the mission of God. Paul writes this book, this letter uh, to the Corinthians. We know that He's written four letters. We have two of them that contain, uh, are contained in the Bible. Uh, this very first letter that is written, he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of that body. Though what it teaches is clear, this teaching literally begins in chapter 12 and will end in chapter 14 about the nature of our gifts, talents, and abilities, and the the uh, call to be the church, and though that teaching seems to be clear, it's not universally experienced. And as soon as we can get over that and recognize that, we can do something about that. And the question that seems to be before the house today is how do we handle hypocrisy? Because hypocrisy is to know that this is what we are supposed to be, but we live very differently. You see, it's not necessarily 
do what I say, not what I do. That's also hypocrisy. But we all are in in a continuum of uh, learning to live what we preach. So to be held to the standard that we must live what we preach exactly is a standard that no human being can meet on this side of eternity. So I'm, I'm trying to take hypocrisy to beyond simply live what you preach to how come there is a difference between what we know we are supposed to be and what we are, at least what people experience we are. So rather than accusing us of anything, I'm just saying that people's experience of us can be different. So what do you do about that? How will how will all that God desires us to be in the church be lived out? Paul's metaphor in this chapter is one of a body. That is, that one way to see the, this organism, you know, some people will say that the church is an organization, and there is truth that we are organized. And anything, if you're not Presbyterian, you may not know this about us, we do everything decently and orderly. It's almost a gift of the Spirit for us to do things in an orderly way. But, one, it's not a gift, and nor is it a calling, but it is who we are, and so let's embrace that's who we are. That's not exactly what Paul is addressing here. He is saying that, yes, you're an organization, but you're primarily an organism. You're a collection of people who are alive. And not only is Paul say that, here, but in other places he's going to say, not only you are a body here locally, but you're a body universally. There are people all over the world that are gathering this day for the same purpose you have gathered, to hear something from God, to worship him and then respond to what he is telling us. And that's happening all over the world. People in Africa and Asia and South America and Europe and all over are doing what you're doing. And and in one sense, we're a universal body that we are not complete until Christ comes back and that body is joined totally uh, together, not just spiritually, but physically. But there's also a sense in which you're part of a body in history. That is, you have brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers of the faith that trace all the way back to the beginning of time. And sometimes we forget both of those realities. We tend to think that everybody has the same experience that we have on Sunday morning. That's to negate the fact that people are experiencing worship very differently than we are, who who have the same message, but the methodology surrounding that message is very different. Some some people are listening to this message under a tree. And some people are hearing this message in a group context where there's more dialogue than uh, we can afford you here on Sunday morning. But also, even in the style of worship, it's very different. But not only is all that true, but there are people in history who are part of the body right now that lived hundreds and thousands of years ago. And sometimes we forget that about ourselves. Paul's not addressing the universal. He's addressing a single church in a single city and hoping that throughout time we can begin to think of our own locality, our own church, in light of that. And so Paul is going to define for us three tests 
three ways to measure, to get on a metric, how we're doing as a healthy body. It's like going to the doctor and the doctor is asking you, what are your symptoms? And when we give those symptoms up, he's able to say, well, here's the diagnosis. Here's the problem. And here's the prescription. Here's, here's the solution. Paul's going to do that for us in this text. He's going to, we're going to take this text that is primarily about spiritual gifts and recognize it in its context of the greater letter. Paul's really not talking about spiritual gifts at all. He's really talking about the health of the church. So why did Paul write this letter? Paul wrote this letter because the church in Corinth started off incredibly well. Paul planted it. It had some great leaders. Apollos was here. Different different major leaders of the early church came through Corinth. And, and it had a great reputation in the beginning. But it's not long before Paul is away from here and and some of these Christian leaders have moved on to other churches that reports began to come back to Paul. Not just one, many reports were coming back about how this church was doing and, and it wasn't doing that well. Particularly it wasn't doing that well in regards to being a witness into the community in which it sat. That is, Corinth was a town that had a mixed reputation and quite frankly, most people thought of it as a bad reputation. The way many people in the 90s thought about New York City or or San Francisco, this is the way many people thought about Corinth, to the point where when somebody wanted to give you a put-down, when someone wanted to say you're not worth much, they would call you a Corinthian. And that was a pejorative. And so Paul's recognizing this about this church, that what God has established in this city for, for the proclamation of the gospel, the transformation of this city that had been synonymously known with immorality to become more like Christ because of that church in its presence. Instead, the city had a greater influence on the church than the church ever did on the city. To the point where some people were saying the Corinthian Christians were less uh, Christian and more Corinthian. And that again was a pejorative. Paul looked at the many reports he was getting, and there were a number of issues of division. They were divided over their leadership, who they were going to follow, who was going to be the the person that they could invoke and, and say, well, he trumps this guy, we're going to follow this guy because he's our leader, to divisions over their freedoms. They came to Christ in a very uh, religious uh, uh, city that had many, many gods and many, many worship centers and many of the uh, freedoms that they would experience about being a Christian were being challenged in light of living in a city that, that was that pluralistic. And those freedoms would arise, and you can see many chapters that Paul uh, addresses with their freedoms. But also, even with sin, how are they going to deal with sin? In light of the fact of their reputation in the community... There was sin in the church. And, and that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Anytime you collect two people, you got three sins. There's just lots of sin whenever there's humanity because we're still fallen. Even though we're redeemed, we're still fallen. That doesn't change until Christ comes back and glorifies us into the image of Christ. And, also, and then our, our life uh, becomes in line with our profession automatically. Again, apart from us. And so Paul looks at these divisions in this church and they say, you know, these are just symptoms. You're telling me you've got a headache and and your leg doesn't work well. But let me tell you, there's a bigger problem here. There's a bigger disease than these symptoms. We could treat them and he does treat them. 
Almost every chapter is taking a division and Paul addressing that division. But Paul is saying that all of these collected together is a bigger problem than any specific issue of leadership, of, of freedom in Christ and, and of sin. He says, here's your big overarching problem. Your overarching problem is that your reputation in the community is not helping. It's hurting the mission. Because you are more like Corinth than Corinth is like you. That the truth be told is that you were sent into Corinth. You were called out of Corinth to be an influence over Corinth. And instead, Corinth has an influence over you. To the point where people can't tell the difference between the church and the city. It's mission. The whole letter is literally a call to return to who they are in Christ. Paul is concerned not only about them, but the mission of their city. Paul is walking an incredibly fine line that he didn't do in Galatians. In Galatians, he wasn't so concerned about their feelings. He wasn't so concerned about their identity in Christ. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Here, there's none of that language. He he opens up and says... To those set apart in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. He's got 13 different divisions in this church, in this city. And he doesn't start out by, you foolish Corinthians, who's bewitched you? He starts out by saying, you saints. And the very next thing that he writes is, grace to you. And yet, we tend to think that grace goes nowhere. But grace has an agenda. Grace always has a purpose. Grace always takes us somewhere. And that somewhere is to be conformed to the image of Christ, whether we're talking about collectively or individually. So in verse 3 of our own chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one says Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He starts off by talking about this particular division, this particular problem, by saying what they have in common, what they are unified around. And that is that Jesus is Lord. And the reason that is so amazing in this context is that in Corinth is part of the Roman Empire where Caesar is Lord. And so for Christians to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. It could cost them their very life. Certainly could cost them their jobs. It could cost them their family. And so to say that comes with consequence. It comes uh, uh, with uh, a whole lifestyle of persecution. And so to say that, the only way that could happen in that context is if it was a work of the Spirit, not a work of man. The only way that that can happen is that the Spirit has come into you and given you new life. And because of that, Jesus is Lord and be damned what the Romans would do. And that's exactly what the Romans would try to do. True spirituality confesses faith in Christ and his work alone. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit to unite us to Christ and to one another. That's why in verse 13, Paul will say, for in one spirit, we are all baptized. That word baptized literally means the way in which we all become Christians is the same way. Yes, it's it's pictured by some water. But remember, that water points to a greater reality, your union with Christ and all the benefits that come with that union with Christ. And it all comes the same way by the work of the spirit. 
whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And please understand, he's saying this and he knows that's a big deal to talk about Jews and Greeks in the same worship setting. Nowhere in the world is that true, including in Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem, in order to worship in a Jewish place, even if you grew up Greek, you had to become a Jew first. And so what Paul is declaring here in 1 Corinthians 12 is not seen anywhere in the world except in the church where Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, are together and worshiping the same God. And that Greeks were not required to become Jews and Jews were not required to become Greeks before they both worshiped God together. Isn't that very interesting? He's not asking you to cease being African-American to become an American Christian. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying cease to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. Don't, don't cease to be a Greek in order to become a Christian. I recognize that diversity. I recognize that, that, that uniqueness about you. What makes you unique is not your hyphen. What makes you unique is that you're Christian and you came from different tribes, people, and tongues. It's what makes Christianity and the church so unique in the world. Not only are we part of the body that is all over this, co- this planet, but also all over history. That's what he's saying. It's true about slaves and free men and women. One spirit, one body. But the question before the house is, but why? To what end is our unity? It can't, can't simply be unity for unity's sake. He says in verse 7, to each is given a manifestation. For what purpose? For the common good. Paul is concerned that what was given to unify us in the body has become an occasion for division in the body. And specifically centered around the gifts of the Spirit, which are not yours anyway. They're the gifts of the Spirit. That's a uh, 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 genitive of possession, which means it has nothing to do with you. It was given to you, so you've got nothing to brag about, nor do you have anything to regret because you didn't get the gift you wanted. That is, the body is what is important, not you as an individual. And in the 21st century America, that's very hard to hear because we're such a Western individualized society. But the Bible was not written in a Western individualized society. And so they're talking about a community. You're giving a gift for the purpose of the whole, not for you. And so they, they were, he's correcting this issue that they were taking some of the gifts And we know which ones because they tended to be at the beginning of their list. And the way to know it's at the beginning of their list, it's at the end of Paul's list. Paul puts what they thought were really cool gifts at the end so that they would recognize that putting gifts at the beginning has nothing to do with the Spirit, has everything to do with man. And what's at the end of his list that would be at the beginning of their list what gifts what we would call charismatic or extraordinary gifts of tongues, the gifts of interpretation, the gifts of healing, gifts of prophecy, the things that Paul will say, I understand you think those are important, but every gift's important because they're all for the common good. Every gift. Verse 10 tells us that Paul deliberately lists them the way he lists them. Because Paul's main point is that the gifts of the Spirit are for the common good. There's a variety of gifts. That word gifts literally in the Greek is the word uh, 
charisma. We get the word charisma from it, but, but the idea is that these gifts are from God. And so if you are a Christian, you have a gift. And that makes you a charismatic, whether you want to admit it or not. I think the day Presbyterians proudly walk into gatherings of Christians and say, I'm a charismatic, then the world is going to be set upside down. That's the last thing people will think we Presbyterians will talk about. But Paul is trying to communicate that there's not a hierarchy of gifts, which is one of the reasons he puts the gift of spreadsheets right next to the gifts of healing prayer and says they're the same. Because they're both for the common good. They're not for your good. They're not so you can put a stripe. You can, you can have the, the green beret or you, sorry for you, Navy guys, or, or the, or the seal. So you can have that emblem. I've got the gift over here of preaching. And I'm going to have my badge so I know where all the preachers are in the room. And those of you who have the gift of administration, you're just going to have to hide that because we don't think that's all that special. And Paul says, no, that's not true. Because the body needs every last one of them. If God didn't need your gift in this church, you would not be here. We need every last one of them. The common good is the building up of the body of Christ, and that's the purpose for every gift. It's for the other. It's other-focused. Listen, I hear a lot as one of the preachers, one of the pastors of the church. This is what EP needs. If EP just had this one thing, listen, all feedback is welcomed. But let me tell you for the record what EP needs. EP needs you. It is that simple. It's easy to be cynical and critical of our church. In fact, somehow we think that is a gift. And just because the human heart naturally has a propensity to be critical and cynical, this doesn't make it right or good. And it is not a gift of the Spirit. It is the gift of the evil one. Real community is forged in the oven of not unity... Real community is forged in the oven of disappointment. This is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said. And I think it's important, so I put it in your worship guide so you can take home. Those who love their dream of a Christian community, more than they love the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community. I just want you to stop and think about what he's saying. He wrote this in a book called Life Together which is a book on the church. And if anybody knew much about the church, the church was really hurting during World War II in Germany. And so he wrote a lot about the nature of the church, particularly the nature of a church as a suffering community. But when he got to talking about the unity of the church, he made this statement. And his statement is, your dream of the dream church, your, your value of the perfect church actually makes you the destroyer of the church if you love that dream more than the reality, even with all of its imperfections. 
And we need to be careful because we all want the church to be more than it is, to be more like Christ, not less like Christ. But we have to be careful that that doesn't cross over into cynicism and criticism and that we begin to love the dream of what the church will become more than the church itself, even its imperfection. Membership in a local church. And and if you're not a member of a local church, I am not railing on you. But listen, membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect people. To form an imperfect community engaged in the mission of God imperfectly. Let me give it to you one more time. Because I think... We tend to think, I'll join the... This is Abraham Lincoln when they asked him when he was running for president in in 1860 why he wasn't a member of a church. And his answer was, when I find a church that was perfect, I'll join it. Membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect people to form an imperfect community engaged in the mission of God imperfectly. What we're doing is going to be imperfect because we're imperfect. And you joining us is not going to make us less perfect. More perfect. It's going to make us less. Maybe I was just dreaming about myself. (laughs) The test of true spirituality is our willingness to endure disappointment and our willingness to forgive those who harm us instead of walking away. We choose to be part of the solution rather than the criticism. This church needs you. Using your gift for the common good. Second, and that is the presence and celebration of diversity. That's the second task. We cannot be the body of Christ without the presence of diversity. Scott McKnight, who writes a commentary on this passage, says, the church is the fellowship of difference. That's what Paul says. We're one body and yet many members. As an expression of the body of Christ, we need more diversity, not less. And that a healthy body has more than one or two parts. A foot and a hand does not a body make. All of one kind of believer does not make a body. It makes a part, not a whole. And so a healthy body has more than one part. And therefore, we need to pray for ethnic diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, age diversity, socioeconomic diversity, and even theological diversity. And that's hard to say because I love theology. And we would probably work better if you all agreed with me. But I would, we would not be the body of Christ. We'd be something, but we wouldn't be the body of Christ. We're, we're people who don't agree with me, rub upside me, and then make me think about what I have concluded as to be right and good. Because that won't happen if we're all the same. I think it's, in my opinion... One of the greatest things about EP is that we're not all on the same page theologically. And therefore, we're not all on the same page practically. Our unity is forged not in our uniformity. It's forged in our diversity. 
That's what Paul says in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. There are two ways to take that verse. One way is, I'm not needed because I'm not one of the cool parts. The other way to take it is because I'm a foot, I'm not part of that group because it's a group of brains. I'm more of a foot. I'm more of a doer. I'm not... I'm not one who was sitting in the quarter and trying to work all this out theologically right. We need them both. Because you can imagine if all we do is think, then we don't have a way to take our theology and work it out. And if all we are are doers, then we don't ground our practice in what is true and lovely and beautiful. This community needs you. It needs your voice. It needs your presence. And we need diversity. Even when you look around the room and you can see, you can see ones and twos of diversity. And let me tell you, you're pioneers. If you look around this room, you don't see anybody that looks like you, who has your social economic background, has your educational background, you're a pioneer here. And you know what pioneers are? They're people who are willing to blaze a trail where no one has walked before. And we thank you. Because in order to have more of you, you've got to stay. You've got to be engaged and you have got to be part of the body. Paul says, if the whole body in verse 17 were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? This is what Paul's saying in 21st century language. Homogeneity, this idea of being alike, is the disease, not the cure. Our culture is sorting us out. It's putting us into category. The only place that should not be happening is inside the church. If we want to show the world how Jesus has made a difference in us, is that we don't sort each other out. We don't put each other into categories. We don't say, well, then you're like this, and therefore you, you get this. That's the way the world works. It divides us by politics. It divides us by race. It divides us by wealth. It divides us by education. It divides us even by faith. And this is not a strength. It is an impoverishment of both our culture and of our church. Seth Godin said, tribes are essential to flourishing. He's already given in to our fractured world. Community and uh, accountability are vital to uh, individual flourishing. The single most important question of our time is will these tribes promote human flourishing for others or will they seek the pro- uh, the, to promote themselves at the expense of others? You want it a little more spiritual? Uh, Christina Cleveland wrote a book called Disunity in Christ. She's playing on the idea of unity in Christ. And she says discipleship is cross-cultural. When we meet Jesus around people just like us, and then continue to follow Jesus with people just like us, we stifle our own growth in Christ and open ourselves up to a world of division. Don't miss what she's saying. That if a person was just like you led to Christ, and then you were led into a body of people just like you, you're impoverished in your spiritual growth. When we see how much we need one another to become like Jesus in order to be effective in the mission of God, then diversity will be what we pray for. Because it is the key to our health. 
In verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on the, this is verse 23, and on the other parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. We have so much to learn from people not like us. There can be no invisible people at EP. Even for those of us who would like to be invisible. Ralph Ellerson, if you haven't read his book from 1953, it's called The Invisible Man. He's not talking about the superhero. He's talking about African Americans in the United States coming through Jim Crow laws. And what he was saying was the main character who gets no name because his point is that African Americans in 1953 were invisible people to the American dream. You and I cannot afford to have one person in our church be an invisible person. The health of our church depends on everybody being seen and heard. And therefore, we have to ask the question, who's invisible here? What's the metric for EP's health? It can't be the number of people that attend or the amount of money that is given but the number of the fewer people that there are that are invisible here. And that includes our widows and our single parents. It has to include the poor. It has to include those that have not non-university educated. It has to be the doubting. It has to include those that are confused and those that are afraid and those who question their sexual orientation. Because when they are here, Not only do we impart the gospel, but we benefit too. As long as it is a one-way street, they will not be here. Unless we value having them here. The, The last, the last test, and it's really where he's been working toward, is a concern for those who do not know Jesus. This is why unity is so important in every church, but also this church. We are not unified because of unity's sake, but because unity communicates. Paul wants the people of Corinth who do not know Jesus to know Jesus. We too should have that concern in our church. But they need to see a difference in us. They need to see what difference it makes to know Jesus in our lives. Our reputation in this community both individually and collectively as a church, is the highway upon which the gospel travels. Don't miss that. The gospel has to have a highway. And that highway is our reputation in the community. Whether you're talking about your individual one at your workplace or where your neighborhood or where you're in a gym, but it's also the church's reputation. Your life is a highway by which the gospel will travel. Let me give you an example of that in the early church. The one that turned the world upside down, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, said, we do not speak great things, we live them. It's not the quality of our ideas. You can't imagine. It wasn't that evangelists showed up and said, man, I had never thought about God that way. It was because their lives were so compelling that they were willing to hear about a Jesus from Galilee who died on a cross in our place. 
Alan Kreider, who is a Harvard scholar, wrote a book called The, the Patient Firmament of the Early Church. It's just, a, it's just a story after story that he was able to, to garner about the early church to answer this question. Why did the ancient church survive, much less thrive, in the ancient Roman world? And he said there's two reasons. He said the first reason is patience and the second reason is intentional community. What he meant by patience is that they saw that God was sovereign over Rome. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And then secondly, the way that they lived their lives together was a reputation that people looked at and then wanted more. Kreider wrote, history does not support the idea that Christianity grew because we won the argument. Christianity grew because they lived compelling lives. They clothed the naked, they fed the poor, and they cared for the hurting. When the plagues came to Europe, most believe at least 20%, if not a third of Europe, were wiped out by this group of plagues in the ancient world. And in order to save themselves, families literally left grandma and grandpa in the street to save themselves. It was Christians who came at their own expense and picked up these abandoned mothers and fathers and grandparents and children and took them home and cared for them even while they were getting sick from taking care of them. And you ask how in the world would they do that? Is because they knew death had no power over them. That if their life ended here, it just began a new chapter and a much better one. They walked the streets and that made an impression on Rome. They also cared for the poor. Julian the Apostate, I think I've quoted him before. I'm sure he did not name himself. He was the last of the pagan Caesars and he was making an argument why Rome needed to turn back to pagan gods. And, and away from Christianity. And he's making a critique about Christians. And he called them Galileans. He says, those godless Galileans. He's talking about Christians. Not only take care of their poor. But our poor as well. In the ancient world, to become a member of a local church, it took two years. You think we have a long membership process. And you were given a sponsor. It's where AA gets the idea of sponsorship. is because the early church had sponsors. You were assigned someone and he or she was responsible for your personal discipleship before you ever attended worship. If you'll go to the ancient churches in, in Europe that are more than a thousand years old, where's the baptismal font? It is not in the building. In order for you to be baptized, to come into the church, you had to go through this two-year uh, discipleship process where they investigated your life to see if there was a meeting of what you professed with how you lived. And then this sponsor would make a recommendation that you can come in. And then you were baptized and brought into the church. They literally interviewed your friends and your family and your enemies. Sounds like an NSA investigation. They wanted to know, were you truly a believer? Why would they do that? Because they knew nothing would harm their cause more than our hypocrisy. They saw the reputation of the individual and of the church as the highway by which the gospel traveled. Then what should we do? How should we deal with hypocrisy? First is we should not be surprised by it or quit the church over it. If you quit the church every time you saw hypocrisy, there'd be no people left. 
Remember, disappointment is the soul, soil by which the church grows because it's full of human imperfect people. But we should expect more of one another. We should expect those who follow Jesus to live differently, to live in light of who Jesus is. We don't need or want a two-year membership process, nor do we need a background check. But what we need is that lives have been changed by Jesus. And wherefore, we have to be patient. I'm impressed by Paul's patience. Paul says, these are my beloved children. And yet he finds 13 things that they're doing wrong. If God is patient with us, how can we not be patient with one another? We also must fight this idea of homogeneity in our church by having no invisible people. We should commit to not speaking to not only our friends, but also strangers. The fellowship of the difference is welcomed here. We are always moving toward the stranger, not away from them. And that requires us to be gracious. Paul leads with grace and he ends with grace. If you look at chapter 1, he says, grace be to you. When you look at chapter uh, 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 14, another 16 chapters, he ends with grace. One of the things you'll love about recovery ministries is that it begins with, I'm Bruce O'Neill and I'm an alcoholic. And the reason that person can say that is because everybody in the room is an alcoholic. What is said about one is true of all. And that's true in the church. If we had the time, we could go around in the room and say, I I am Bruce O'Neill, a sinner. But I'm also Bruce O'Neill, the saint. And I know that sounds conflicting, but that's humanity until Christ returns. And what that speaks to our high school students and their friends is that this is the place where you can hear that Jesus loves you. That Jesus has covered your sins and that can never change. No matter what. And to the hurting people, the people that we have hurt, you can find healing and love and repentance and restoration because we need you. It has nothing to do with your age. It has nothing to do with your gender. It has nothing to do with your economic, social background. It has nothing to do with your education. It's simply God put you on this planet for the building up of the body of Christ and for us to have a reputation in the community by which the highway for the gospel is set. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, your good news to us from Paul. These three tests, we will be thinking about our our church and we'll be thinking about ourselves individually. And so give us much grace and patience. But at the same time, grace has an agenda. And so help us to see that, to live that, and to call one another in line with the gospel, not just for their sake or just for our sake, but for the mission. Help us to see that we're still here We've been planted here, right where we are, so that people of our city and community might know Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.